looking at. Let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter number 13 this morning. The book of Nehemiah chapter number 13. For the past couple weeks we've been preaching out of this chapter of the Word of God. And uh, it details what is the closing statements on the life of Nehemiah, the endeavor to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. If you know your Bible, then uh, you know that the children of Israel were carried into captivity. Really, it was the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel had been carried away captive some years earlier uh, through the Assyrians. Uh, a man by the name of Sennacherib, the uh, emperor of Assyria, had carried away the northern ten tribes. And uh, then some, I believe, 150 years later or so, the uh, southern kingdom of Judah is carried away into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. We've been teaching in Sunday school on the book of Daniel. And, of course, Daniel takes place during the captivity of uh, the children of Judah during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And after 70 years, God puts in the heart of the leader of the Medo-Persian Empire. They are now the world empire, uh, that having eclipsed and having uh, overtaken the Babylonians. God puts in the heart of a man that is the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire named Cyrus to allow the children of Judah to go back to the land of Israel and to rebuild the temple. This activity takes place under a man by the name of Ezra. Ezra is a priest and he is tasked with taking a contingent of the people of God back to the land of uh, Israel, back to the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Well, after the temple is built and finalized and finished, God puts on the heart of a man by the name of Nehemiah, who is uh, the cupbearer to the king there in, uh, in, in the Persian Empire to come back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They knew it wasn't no good to have a house if you didn't have walls to go around that house to protect them and to give them the freedom to worship and to serve God. And so the book of Nehemiah is occupied with the rebuilding of these walls. And it, it details and records for us the, the enemies that stood up against the work of God. You mark it down. You commit in your heart to do something for God. You're going to run into opposition. You know, a lot of folks run into opposition. They just quit. They just give up. They say, well, I'm not willing to, to do it. I'm not willing to pay the price. It's not worth the cost. But I believe it's worth the cost of opposition to serve God. I believe it's worth having to do without some things. I believe it's worth uh, readjusting your schedule. I, I The other day, a preacher put this on Facebook, and it kind of stuck with me. And uh, the, Now, get mad at him because he said this, not me, all right? So I'm just uh, I'm just carrying water here. He's the one that said it, not me. But he said, you know, we ought to be so dedicated to church that we have to tell folks, no, I'm sorry, I can't be at that activity because I have church. How often do you instead find that people are unfaithful to the house of God? You say, why, well, why weren't you here? We miss you. We hated that you couldn't be here. And they say, well, I had such and such activity. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's going to be times you're providentially hindered uh, to be in the house of God. But it ought to be the only time you ain't in the house of God is when you're providentially hindered from being in the house of God. It ought not be times when there's a ball game or time when there's a pretty day or uh, whatever it might be. It ought to be that the house of God is a priority in our life. I believe it's worth it, man. I, I believe that our families are going to be better off. I believe certainly our nation wouldn't be in the mess that it was in and is in if God's people put the house of God and the work of God and the Word of God and the things of God first in their life. And we're looking to Washington to fix something. We're looking to the White House to fix something that can only be fixed in your house and in my house. Uh, and that's part of our problem today is we want we want everything legislated and straightened and straightened out. When has the government ever fixed a thing? 
Government, anytime it shows up, hey, what was it Ronald Reagan said? The scariest words in the English language is, I'm here from the government, I'm here to help. Amen? Uh, government just breaks things. It, it always does everything more inefficiently and, and always tears things up and then shows up and says, now you need government to fix it. We're asking government to fix something that can only be fixed in your house and mine. Until we start raising our kids different, until we start leading our homes different, until we start being faithful to the house of God and the things of God and making it a priority in our life, I hate to tell you, but you can send every politician there is to Washington. The problem's only going to get worse. You can try to affect all the cultural change that you want, but until we get our house right, nothing's going to be right. The power lies with you and me to change the mess that we're in. So we find there's opposition to the people of God, but God overcomes that opposition for them. They finish the walls and they rebuild it. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking everything surely is now straightened out and in a good condition. But when we come to Nehemiah chapter 13, we find the exact opposite. We find that everything is in disarray. And so we've spent the last few weeks preaching on getting your spiritual house in order. I want to begin reading in verse number 10. We'll read down to verse 14 because we've looked at some things that we have to get right if we want to be right and if we want our house to be right. The Bible says in verse number 10, this is of course Nehemiah pinning this down, speaking in his person. He says, I perceive that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled everyone to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. And I made treasurers over the treasuries, Shelemiah the priest and Zadok the scribe. And of the Levites, Padiah, and next to them was Hanan the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah. For they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. Let's pray together. Lord, we're just privileged to be in your house today. We've come here under a a free flag with the ability to come and to worship. Didn't have to worry whether we was going to be arrested, whether we were going to be accosted. We're just able to come here to sit in these comfortable pews to hear the Word of God preached. Lord, may it not just be an exercise in entertainment. May it not just be an exercise in ritualism, formality, obligation, or duty. But may we, Father, have come with our hearts affixed on this truth that You're going to meet with us, that we need You, Lord, that we need Your presence, that we need Your Word, that we need to hear from You. And may we submit our hearts and minds unto the truth of Your Word this morning. Lord, I pray... This message this morning, there wouldn't be a touch of flesh upon it. I pray that you'd hide us behind your cross and that we'd see only Christ and Him alone and that, Lord, you'd receive the glory from what takes place. Now, affect these things in our hearts and we'll be sure to thank you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I'd remind you of three simple truths to give you some context. Uh, when you examine, if you were just show up in, in Jerusalem on this day, and do a survey of the city, you would find that by all outward appearances, they seem to be in a pretty good situation. You'd show up, you'd find this, that the temple had been rebuilt. 
you would find that worship had been reinstituted in the land. For 70 long years, the temple lay barren and in pieces. But now they have rebuilt the temple and they have all of the resources that they need to serve God. You know, it reminds you and it reminds me of me and you today. The New Testament says that God's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You know, we have everything we need to serve God. I know there's some folks wish they had more talent, more capability more time, more money, whatever it might be. But God knows what you need. God knows what He expects of you. And God has promised you that He has given you all things that pertain unto life and godliness. You and I have everything we need to serve God. We have all the resources at our disposal. We don't have to go and worship at a temple. We don't have to bring a sacrifice. Thank God the sacrifice has already been given. We don't have to go through a bunch of rituals. We don't have to go through a bunch of washing. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, some of us, it wouldn't hurt us though. Somebody say amen to that too. Uh, We don't have to go through all these things to get to God. God has given us boldness and access by faith in Jesus Christ. We have access through His blood into this grace wherein we stand. We have everything we need, all the resources to serve God. You would have walked to Jerusalem. The first thing you would have been faced with wasn't the temple. The first thing you would have seen is that the wall had been restored. You know, as we've said, a wall provided them the freedom to serve God. Part of the reason that they couldn't serve God without that wall is because the enemies of the people of God were always accosting them, were always assaulting them. And they spent all their time just looking out and watching out instead of ever worshiping. You know, I fear that sometimes that's the case in our life. We spend all of our time just trying to put out fires that we've lit ourselves. We spend all of our prayer life asking God to forgive us of dumb things that we've done throughout the week. We spend all of our time trying to just catch up, getting into our Bible. We let things get away from us. We get behind on things. And instead of spending our time worshiping when we come into the house of God, we got to spend our time on lookout. we got to spend our time doing serious business with God, getting things right. Now, I want you to listen carefully to me this morning. If there's something in your life that is not right, and you came this morning, I hope you came with the intention of getting it right. I hope you don't leave this place still in a wrong condition with God. I hope if there's sin in your life, bitterness in your heart, rebellion in your spirit, that you'll put it on this altar, that you'll ask God's forgiveness, that you'll repent of it. But it ought to be that the people of God walk in enough communion with the Lord that when we come into the house of God, we can come in and worship, get in His presence, get in the glory, rejoice in what He's done in our life. Listen, in this New Testament day of grace, nobody can stop us from serving God. We have the freedom to serve God if we want to. God has taken every bit of that Old Testament Christianity, washed it in the blood of Jesus, and planted in the heart of every believer so that the Bible says that you and I, we are the temple of God. We are the house of God. And He has done so that we might be able to have the freedom to worship Him no matter where we're at. Then you'd find as you walk through the streets that it was a peaceful time. The enemy had been rebuffed. Uh, the Tobiah, the, uh, and, and Sanballat, the Horonite, and, and Jeshur, the Arabian, these people that had stood up to defeat and to thwart the work of God, they had all been rebuffed, they had all been fought back, they had all been overcome, and there was no enemy that could stop them from serving God. They had the ability to serve God if they chose to do so. They had the safety, the security to do so. You know, the Bible tells us we are to be sober and be vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walketh about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But God also is very careful to remind us that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Old Flip Wilson, he may have made a million dollars off of it, but when you stand before God, naked before his eyes, saying, the devil made me do it, is not going to be an excuse. 
The devil can't stop you from serving God. Couldn't stop Job from serving God. Couldn't stop Job from praising the Lord in the midst of his sorrow and affliction. He said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. If the devil couldn't stop Job, he can't stop you. Job wasn't indwelt by the Spirit of God. Job didn't have a completed, perfect, inerrant, preserved, inspired, infallible Bible. Job didn't have the fellowship communion of the local church. We have all these things today. If the devil couldn't stop Job in his poverty, then how could he stop us in our spiritual plenty? fact is, the devil can't stop you from serving God. And yet, though all these things were in line, still the city was a mess. And, you know, we have all these things, and I think we spend a lot of time sitting back, reclining on and rejoicing in these things. The wall being restored, the freedom to serve God, the temple being rebuilt, the resources to serve God, the enemy being rebuffed, the ability to serve God. We spend a lot of our time sitting back and rejoicing in those things when very often our spiritual house is still in disrepair. You can have all these things and your life still be a mess. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Because I know a lot of Christians that have all these things. Because if you're saved by God's grace, you have all three of those things whose lives are still a mess. They're still not in church. They're still not living like a Christian. They're still not reading their Bible. They're still not on praying ground and praying actively to their Father. They're still not witnessing and being light and salt in the world. They have all these things, but still their spiritual house is in disorder. So Nehemiah shows up and he sees a few things that have to be addressed. And we just walked through this passage. The first week we talked about how we have to get our associations right if we're going to have our spiritual house in order. You can't run with the wrong crowd and be right at the same time. Then we talked about how we have to get our consecration in order. Nehemiah shows up and finds that all of the supplies and resources that were supposed to be for the ministry of God uh, were not there, but instead this guy Tobiah was loafing around living in the storehouse that they had used. He was the enemy of God. Eliashib, the high priest, had allowed this to happen on his watch. So in other words, the things that should have been there weren't there, and the things that shouldn't have been there were there, and they had to do a cleaning of house. They had to do a little spring cleaning to get their house in order. They had to get consecrated. This morning, I want to take a few moments of your time, and I want to preach to you on getting your dedication right. I'll tell you this, man. Being a part of a New Testament church is not a passive activity. Serving God is not something that happens accidentally or incidentally. It's going to take some purpose. It's going to take some discipline. It's going to take some dedication. We live in a day that is marked by casual interaction with the world that we live in. The last thing we want is commitment. And that's the reason. Everything in our society is affixed to this. People don't want to have to commit to anything. We want to just be able to be casual in our interaction with things. I've already... Hey, listen. It's all right. It's good that we just go ahead and settle in right here. That way I can just preach from a defensive position. Is that all right? Hey, listen. It's going to take some dedication. It's going to take some commitment. And let me tell you something, the house of God can't function like it should without the dedication of God's people. Everybody's real quick to say, this is our church, until there's something needs to be done. Then it's their church. Then it's God's church. But when it's time to make a decision, it's our church. But then when it's time to accomplish something, it's somebody else's church. I'm here to tell you that both sides of those coins are interconnected. 
And it's going to take, it's not just the house of God for it to function right. For your house, I'm talking about the four walls you live within, where your bed sits, where your couch sits, where your TV sits. Your house, your home is not going to be right until you're dedicated and committed to the things of God. We've raised a generation on casual Christianity, and now we are shocked that they have no interest in the things of God. We have raised a generation of kids teaching them that ball games, teaching them the extracurricular activities, teaching them that Dollywood and amusement parks, teaching them that lakes, teaching them that everything else takes precedent over the Word of God. And then we're shocked that we can't get them in the house of God. We are reaping the fruit of casual, cultural Christianity instead of committed, consecrated Christianity. And now we don't know what to do with ourselves. Let me tell you, the only way to fix it is to fix it. And the way that we fix it, it begins with you and I. I want you to notice a few things from this passage that we've read. Nehemiah shows up and he notices something immediately. He walks in the house of God and he hears crickets. He looks around and there's no one there. You know, that's where a lot of churches are at today. You walk in and it feels like a funeral home. Ain't nobody there. And he walks in and nobody's in the house of God. And he asks this question. Why is the house of God forsaken? We might say it this way. How did it get in this shape? And he observes a few things. I want you to notice them with me and I'll try to be brief. Notice first off the dysfunction recognized. Verse 10. He says, I perceived that this was the problem. That the portion of the Levites had not been given them. For the Levites and the singers that did the work were fled every one to his field. Now in this time, the Levites lived in the house of God. They were not spending all of their time. They had parcels of land in the suburbs and they may have spent some time there. But they sort of worked in rotations and in shifts for uh, weeks at a time. And they would come in and they would dwell in the house of God. And the reason that God... God commanded the children of Israel to tithe what they tithe, which very often would be the three things mentioned later on, corn and new wine and oil. Uh, Whenever they would give a sacrifice, a portion of that sacrifice for certain of them would go to the priest. The reason they did this is because that's what the Levites lived off of. That's what the people that were doing the work of God in the temple lived off of. So he shows up and he says, I notice two things. One, there ain't no tithes laid up here. And two, there ain't no workers in here. And he observes that there's been two problems. Let me give them to you. First, he notices that there's been a lapse of faithfulness. He says, the first thing I recognized is that the Levites couldn't stay here because there wasn't anything for them to live off of, and so they fled everyone to their field. In other words, we said a little bit of this last week. You say, preacher, how is it that Eliashib could take Tobiah, who is an enemy of God, and put him in the storehouse where they had kept the corn and the wine and the new and the oil? How is it that he could do such a, a treacherous and, and, and such a dastardly thing? I mean, you would imagine there would be some point at which Eliashib would have said, well, now, wait a minute, we don't need to do this, this is wrong. At some point when he's picking up a cask of oil and throwing it out into the yard. At some point when he's picking up a a sack of corn and throwing it out in the yard. But that's not how it happened. Let me tell you exactly how it happened. The people quit bringing those resources in. The storehouse wound up empty out of neglect. And because of that, Eliashib, he didn't walk in and see all the resources and toss them out. He walked in and saw an empty room. It wasn't a problem for Tobiah to go in and start measuring for drapes. He didn't have to move anything out of the way because the people hadn't been bringing things in in the first place. A lapse of 
or a lapse of faithfulness. It was unfaithfulness that made room. We made the statement, i, I got to preach this week's message, Toby, not last week's message. Let's preach this week's message. But I said last week... <laughs> That very often we view it this way. We, we imagine that a person gets in sin and then that gets them out of the house of God. Now that does happen sometimes. I've seen it happen. You probably have too. But you know what I see often happen more? People get out of church over some silliness, some hurt feeling. Uh, some uh, a, a lot of times I'm convinced of this. People have a complex sometimes as though the world... We live in an entitlement generation. And sometimes when people have been living for God and doing things for God and serving God, if they're doing it for themselves or for other people and not for the Lord, they reach a point where they say... I'm just tired of doing right. And people say, well, I've been getting up, I've been going to church six months or a year or four years or five years or twenty years. If I want to lay around in bed, who's going to say anything? I'll tell you who's going to say something. God's going to say something about it. The problem is you was going for me or you was going for one of these people or you was going for your own sense of self-aggrandizement. If you're going for the Lord, then you never have an excuse to give up on God because He ain't never going to give up on you. And people just get tired of doing right. They just get tired of it. How many times have you heard people say this? Well, I was a good wife. I was a good mother. They'll say, I was a good uh, husband. I was a good father. And I did good and I just got tired of it. And I just walked out one day. What happened? They became unfaithful and then that produced sinfulness in their life. Listen, if you don't have the right things in your life, it is real easy for the wrong things to find a home. And that's what happened. There was a lapse of faithfulness. Let me say it this way. They stopped giving. And when they stopped giving, the whole thing fell apart. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, if you want to get all tightened up and get all purse-lipped over preaching about giving, the doors are right there, right there, and right there. But for those that got enough God about them to recognize that I ain't even talking about the few dollars sitting in your pocket, I'm talking about yourself, your time, your energy, your talents, your, your investment of your person in the things of God. When we get to the place where we start saying, well, I've done enough, I've served enough, I've given enough, now it's time for me. I remember years ago, and I ain't, some of y'all going to know who I'm saying when I say it, and for those of y'all that don't, ask the ones that do, because I ain't going to tell you. But when I first came here, there, I remember somebody made a statement said, we've been through a lot of trouble, and we've been through a lot of chaos. Say, it's just time to rest for a little while. They ain't never quit resting, have they? They ain't never quit resting. They rested and rested and rested and they're going to rest till they're in a rest home and they're going to rest till they rest in peace because they decided they was going to back off of serving God. Let me tell you something. When we, I, I've seen it happen a thousand times. People say, well, I've just been going too hard. I just need a little time to rest. Now listen, I understand. Don't get me wrong. There are times we get fatigued. There are times that we don't grow weary of the way, but we grow weary in the way. But you know, the book of Malachi says that when we grow weary, He makes our feet as hinds feet. In other words, He enables us to, uh, to, to elevate above that weariness and to keep on serving Him. You better be careful because when you stop going, when you stop serving, when you stop giving, when it becomes about indulging yourself instead of exalting the Savior, you're on slippery ground. There was a lapse in faithfulness. You know what it produced? The Bible says that because the Levites had nothing to eat there, they fled every one to their field. Isn't it interesting? Man, your Bible's so good. My Bible's so good. It's so specific. The Bible, uh, Christ told a parable in the New Testament and, and He described a, the, a field and someone sowing in a field. And He said that the field is the world. 
the Levites. These are people supposed to be consecrated to the work of God. The thing that's supposed to define their life is that they are not like anyone else in Israel. That their entire purpose and being is to live for God, to serve God, to labor for for God. They are the priestly class of people. Their inheritance was not supposed to be in this world, but in the world to come. Their investment and their energy was not supposed to be towards the things of this world. It was supposed to be towards the things to come. Now you might say, well, preacher, that's good, but what in the world does that have to do with me? You know, the Bible says in the New Testament that the Lord has made us priests and kings. I believe in the priesthood, the individual priesthood of the believer. I believe that every one of us is tasked with being high priests in our own life and approaching unto God ourselves, not going to someone else to do it for us, but going ourselves into the presence of God. You say, preacher, who would have the right? Well, uh, the Bible says, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Amen. We're given boldness and access by faith in Him. So you know what that tells me? In the Old Testament, there was a certain group of people who were to invest their entire life in spiritual things. And their focus and their goal and their passion in life was not to be the things of this world, but was to be the things of the world to come. And it tells me, my Bible does, that in the New Testament, every one of us is a part of that class of people. It's the reason that the book of Colossians says we're to set our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. We are dead and our life is hid with Christ in Christ with God. You know what it tells me? That oftentimes... Well, let me just say it this way. People that should have had their focus on spiritual things, when there was a lapse of faithfulness, when they started indulging self, when they started looking out for numero uno and no one else, they fled and went to the field. The field's a picture of the world. You know the problem with a lot of people today? They got their head in the field instead of in the faith. A lot of people today, their problem is they're more worried about that house they want to buy. They're more worried about that next uh, raise that they want to get at work. They're more worried about the next car that they want to buy, the next toy, the next nonsense. They are plumb, dug down, rooted into the field when they should be in the house. And they're living for the things of this world instead of the next world. There was a lapse of faithfulness, but there was a loss of focus that took place. They lost their focus. Levites were supposed to be focused on the things of God. Can I ask you a question? Why is it you think you're in this world? I'm, I'm asking you an honest question. Why is it do you think God has left you in this world? Why do you think you draw a breath? Hey, listen, ain't no telling. I mean, I, right now, you could go down to UT Hospital, go down to Fort Sanders, go down to Park West, go down to Tano, any of these places, and you would find cold bodies on slabs everywhere. Why are you here? Surely that's not by virtue and by dint of your innate goodness. Let me tell you something. There's probably people a lot better than you or me laying on a slab somewhere. Why are you and I here? Why did God save us? What did He save us for? I'll go ahead and give you the answer. You ready? Two for one. All right, you ain't even got to pay for the answer. I'll just give it to you since you bought the question. You're here to serve God. You're here to live for the Lord. You're not here to live for yourself. You're not here to live for your bank account. You're not here to live for whatever toys you might buy. Hey, listen, I don't covet, nor do I resent, uh, nor do I disdain a single thing God blesses you with. But don't ever let any of those blessings drive you from the house to the field. Don't ever let them keep you from serving God. A lot of us, things God's blessed us with gold and we've made golden calves out of it. And we're letting those things keep us from serving God. The dysfunction is recognized here. But then I want you to notice verse 11. There's a diagnosis that's required. 
Bible says, Then contended I with the rulers. And said, here's the question he asked. He said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. So there's a few things going on in this passage. He gathers the rulers and he, he has an inquisition here. He has, a, he has an inquiry. He asks them this searching question. Now stop and think about it. Think about what he's asking when he's asking why. I said earlier he's asking how did this happen. But he really, he already knows the answer of how. He wants to know why. He knows how it happened. The people quit tithing. When they quit tithing, the Levites got focused on the field instead of on the house, and they left, and the house of God was abandoned. He knows what has led to this place. So he asks this question, why did it happen? This is a pointed question. You know why? Because he already knows the answer to it, and they do too. Can I, can I, there's such a thing called rhetorical questions. That's a question where you ain't asking it for an answer, you already know the answer. Right? You're asking it so that they can consider the answer. This is a rhetorical question. Why is the house of God forsaken? You know what the answer is? Because you let it. Because you let it happen. Because you let it happen. It wasn't a matter of an administrative or structural issue in God's construction of the order of the temple. God had made provision for everything that there needed to be a provision for. It was that the rulers had allowed this to happen. This is particularly pointed when you consider what happens in chapter number 10. When they finish the walls, and when they have a big celebration, they consecrate the walls, uh, Nehemiah, he gets up, and with all of the people, they make several commitments to the Lord. And listen to one of the things that he says, verse number 38. The Bible says, The priest, the son of Aaron, this is in chapter 10, shall be with the Levites when the Levites take tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes unto the house of our God, to the chambers into the treasure house. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of corn, of the new wine, and the oil unto the chambers where are the vessels of the sanctuary, and the priests that minister, and the porters and the singers. Listen to this last phrase. And we will not forsake the house of our God. You know why he's asking them this? Because not but a few chapters earlier, everybody had stood up, all of them together, and all in unison said, We will not forsake the house of our God. Nehemiah says, I've been gone for a few months. I come home and you've done exactly what you swore that you'd never do. Let me tell you something. I know what you're thinking right now. Because it's the same thing that my flesh thinks. When I see people out of the will of God, out of church, when I see people whose lives are a wreck, when I see people that you sing in this choir out in the world, when I see people that you sit in these pews and their life is a wreck, I say, that'll never be me. That'll never be me. I say to myself, it was them, and I have a thousand reasons why it would be them and never me. But can I let you in on a little secret? The same blood that runs through their veins runs through your veins and mine. And the reason that they are where they're at is not because all of a sudden they just made a decision to go crazy. It's not because all of a sudden one day they just said, Hey, listen, I hate God. I know I've been praising God, but now I hate Him. I know I've been reading my Bible, but now I hate it. I know I've been living for the Lord, but now I hate Him. They didn't make a decision one day. Instead, they said, I'm just going to take a little time for me. It's going to take a little time for me. I'm just going to focus on me for a little bit. I'm just going to take a little time for me. I'm just going to step back a little bit. I know I've been serving. I know I've been laboring. I know I've been giving. I know I've been investing. But you know, now it's just it's just it's it's time for me, for just a little while. There was a lapse of faithfulness, and you know what? You know what happened? That caused a loss of focus, and pretty soon 
they forsook the house of God. There's a pointed question here, but there was a personal correction that had to take place. Nehemiah says, you know what I did? I gathered them all together and I put them in their place. Now, I know I like how that sounds, but it ain't, it ain't saying what I wish it was saying. I wish it was saying, I gathered them all together and son, I put them in their place. It's not what it's saying. What it's saying, rather, is that Nehemiah, after he spoke to the rulers and said, why'd this happen? And they probably just looked at him and said, boom. He turned around and he went out and he mustered the call. He got all the Levites together and he brought them in and he said, see right here? Stand here. That's your spot. Y- y'all ever been in a wedding? I, listen, I, it's funny because in a wedding, they'll have, they'll be the bride's side, right? And women are just instinctive about these things. They'll just say, stand. And the women just, they kind of just float up there into the proper place. And then you look over at the guy's side and there'll be a big old piece of duct tape stuck right there. And the reason is because they have to say, you stand here and don't move till this happens. Otherwise, men just be wandering around the room like this, middle of a wedding. It's sort of like Nehemiah says, I went and I got them and I brought them in and I said, hey, that's your spot. Stand there. In other words, he had to take every single person, listen carefully, every single person and put them in their spot. Can I tell you something? I hope you take this in the right spirit. We don't have no sign seating around here. You know that, right? If somebody told you that, if somebody tried to sell you a parking pass or something, you better ask for your money back. We ain't got no sign seating. But by the same token, listen now, by the same token, there ain't a single one of you that when your pastor, your Sunday school teacher, the deacons, your other faithful church people, when they walk by and see that spot where you always find your place and you're not there, they don't look at it and say, well, I hope they're okay. Old man of God told me one time, he called me, preacher friend, and this, I just started pastoring. He said, what are you doing? I said, well, it's about to be church time. I'm just standing here in the foyer looking out the window. And he said, you know, a preacher don't stand there and stare out the window to see who's going to show up. He stands there to look out and see who ain't going to show up. You, you know how things get right? Don't you worry about everyone else's place. You get your place right. There has to be a personal correction. You can drop and die on the vine trying to get everybody else right. You've got to get you right. And you got to say, I ain't accountable for all them, but I can make sure that I'm in my place. There was a diagnosis that was required. Notice number three, and I'm going to hurry through these last few. Notice that there was a debt that had to be repaid. Look at verse number 12. The Bible says, Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil under the treasuries. Now, listen, I'll go ahead and tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of corn, but if you want to bring me some corn, I'm fine with that. Fried corn would be best in bacon grease, with maybe some hot peppers in it. But I, I, I don't, or even better, cornbread. I think that'll count. I think God will give us a pass on that. But corn is not really what we're interested in. If you want to bring new wine, I said new wine, I said new wine, I said N-E-W, new wine. If you want to bring some, we're, actually we're doing the Lord's Supper tonight, I'm going to have to run to Walmart and get some juicy juice. So if you want to bring some, that's fine. What I really love for you to do is bring in some oil. Like oil that, you know, has been like distilled into gasoline. Like a bunch of gallons of it that I can put in my car. Amen? Because that's the most valuable thing in this list. But, you know, I think it's beyond whatever material or or, or financial resources. There's a lot of things we could say about these three items. 
But suffice it to say, there was a debt that had to be repaid. That debt never went away until it was paid, because that's how debt works when the government ain't in things, is that it, it, it has to be repaid until it's been... So you know what all Judah did? They got all of what they had owed God and brought it in. Now listen, if you've been robbing God of tithes, you ought to repay it. But that ain't even what I mean. When I see these three things, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the kind of life that we owe God. The corn reminds me that we owe Him the resurrected life. Because Christ gave a statement about corn and a kernel of wheat in John chapter number 12. After He had raised a Lazarus from the dead, He said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die and bringeth forth much fruit, uh, or if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. You know that you and I, we ought to be serving God in the resurrection power of New Testament grace. Can I say it this way? Christ says this, there's an old body and when that old body is sown, it brings forth new life. And that new life, though it is similar, it is a different kind of life. You know, Christians, they ought, they ought to be investing in the things of God with a new life, a different life. We ought not be living like the world lives. We ought not be acting how the world acts. We ought not be talking like the world talks. We ought to live a new and different kind of life. Not only with a resurrected life, but he says that they brought in new wine. Now, this is, of course, grape juice. It's new wine. It's not fermented wine. It's new wine. It's not old wine. But in the Bible, new wine, it it pictures a lot of different things. There's times that it pictures the Spirit of God. There's times that it can picture plenty and wealth. There's times it can picture the judgment and wrath of God. But let me just point to how the Lord Jesus used the term new wine. The the Bible says in Matthew chapter number 9 that the disciples of John came to Jesus and asked this question, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? Why are we fasting, but why do you all not fast? Jesus said unto them, and He gave three illustrations. He gave an illustration about a bridegroom. And He said this, that, hey, listen, when the bridegroom is is with those that are His friends, they rejoice. But one day when He's gone, their rejoicing will end. Then He gives an illustration about a new piece of clothing. He says, if you have a rip in a garment, you don't take a new piece of clothing and sew it in, because when it's washed, that new piece will shrink, and it'll rip away at the seams. And then He says this, He says, neither do men put new wine into old bottles, else the bottles break and the wine runneth out and the bottles perish. But they put new wine into new bottles and both are preserved. Now here's what he's saying. In Middle East times, their wine bottles were skins, animal skins. And whenever they would put grape juice in those animal skins and go on a journey, obviously the fermentation process would begin as soon as they were on their journey. And when that would happen, uh, the gases would be released and it would expand and stretch those skins. And what he's saying is this, you can't take wine that has never gone through that process and put it in an old bottle because it can't bear up under it. When those gases start to be released, it'll burst that skin. What he's saying is this, essentially. He's saying you can't take the new and put it with the old. He says, I'll tell you why the Pharisees fast. Because they're part of an old system that is now being eclipsed by New Testament grace. And they are, are, are fasting 
in repentance and contrition over that sin that the blood of a bull or a goat can never uh, take away. I'll tell you why the disciples of John are fasting. Because their leader is right now laid up in prison. Because he is dying as a result of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. But he says, my disciples, they're not fasting. You know why? Because they are enjoying my everyday presence. They're walking in fellowship and in communion with me. And that's why instead of uh, fasting, they have joy. They have joy. It's a reminder of this. That, listen, we ought to serve God with a joyful life. Nobody should have more fun than the people of God. We're saved. Our old sins have been washed away. We're on our way to heaven. We couldn't go to hell if we tried. Shouldn't nobody have more fun than the people of God? Listen, you ought to invest in the house of God and in the things of God with a joyful spirit. Hey, listen, people talk about people getting in fights at churches. You say, you surprised that happens? I'm surprised it don't happen more often. A lot of people walk in with a chip on their shoulder, say, I dare you, buddy. Go ahead and knock that off. And they're just looking to have a problem. I got news for you. Most of the time you look hard enough for something, you'll find it. If you look for problems in people, you'll find them. If you look for problems in a church, you'll find them. If you look for something to be dissatisfied with, you'll find it. If you look for something to be angry over, you'll find it. But if you look for something to rejoice in, you'll find it. If you look for something to find encouragement in, you'll find it. If, if, you, if you look for the ministration of the grace of God amongst the people of God and loving on one another and helping one another and encouraging one another, you'll find it. If you'll, if you'll look for the right things, you'll find the right things. And then he makes this statement, they ought to bring the oil in. The oil in. Oil in your Bible most uh, often is connected with the Holy Ghost in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, oil was used for many, many things, but predominantly it was used to anoint and consecrate people to the priesthood. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter number 1, it's actually quoting the psalmist here, but the Hebrews writer connects it to the Lord Jesus and says, But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even Thy God, hath anointed Thee with the oil of gladness above Thy fellows. John, 1 John chapter number 2 and verse 20 says this, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. Verse number 27, he said it this way, But the anointing which ye have received of Him abideth in you. He's talking about the Spirit of God. He said, And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie. Well, who is the truth? Who's the Spirit of truth? Christ said that the Spirit of truth would come. That's the Holy Spirit. And that He would dwell within you and indwell you forever. That He would never leave you. What John's talking about in 1 John 2 when he says the unction and the anointing, he's talking about the Spirit of God. And it's a reminder to me of this, that listen, the house of God ain't going to be right. The people of God ain't going to be right. Your spiritual house is not going to be right until we're Spirit-led. Hey, listen... The only way we can take upon ourselves the image and the countenance of the Son of God, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, Paul said, they are the sons of God. They are the sons of God. You say, preacher, does that mean if a person is not obedient to the Holy Ghost and they're not saved? No, hey, listen, uh, John said it this way. He said, beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In other words, we have been positionally made the sons of God. But if you want to look like Jesus, if you want to act like Jesus, if you want to be like Jesus, the only way to do it is to follow the Spirit of Jesus, which is the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost. 
You know the best thing you can do for your church is to obey. I'm talking about, I don't mean use the Holy Ghost as an excuse to do what you want to do anyway. But I'm saying the best thing you can do for the house of God is to be live in obedience to the Spirit of God. You know, I found this. The Bible says that we, and I've already done giving up on the rest of my message, so don't get nervous. You're going to come back tonight and hear the rest of it. But the Bible says that we are to endeavor to keep the, uh, the, the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. You know what that means? That means that in a church, the only way a church can be right is if its people are following the leading of the Spirit of God. The only way that you and I can be in perpetual agreement, and you're always, listen, in any church you're going to have the, the issues and, and, and conflict and discord. It's just, well, I didn't say disco, I said discord. You're going to find disco here. Somebody say amen to that. Some of them you might find some disco, but you ain't going to find it here. But the, the, in any place you're going to find it. where there's people, there's going to be some conflict. But the only way that a church is going to be what it needs to be, and I'm, let me tell you something, I didn't even come here to preach on the church today, if I'm being frank. I came to preach about getting your spiritual house in order. But I found this, man, if you ain't right with the house of God, your house ain't going to be in order. If you ain't right with the house of God, your house ain't going to be in order. Now, that's not to say everybody disagrees with me is wrong. It's not to say everybody that, that, that it disagrees with Wall Ridge Baptist Church is wrong and bad people. I'm not saying that. I, I, but I, there are people in the world that just have... How many times you heard someone say this? Well, I just have a problem with organized religion. What kind are you like? Disorganized? I, you know, I'm being serious. What they mean is I don't want any accountability. Because a lack of accountability... Casualty is the drug of modern society. No commitment, no dedication, no accountability. And that's really what they mean. What they mean is I want to sit back and tell you that I'm walking with God, but I don't want anybody actually checking to see if I am. Because if they pull back the curtain, they'll find out that I'm not. I'm living the way that I want to. But I want to take God's name and slap it on it. I want to take God's name and in vain slap it on it. I am against saying God's name flippantly. I am. I'm against taking God's name in vain, saying it flippantly. I think it's wrong. I think it's sinful. And I think that the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. But I do believe there's a deeper truth there. I believe there's a lot of people that would never flippantly say the name of God, that call themselves Christians, but don't live anything close to being a Christian. And they have took God's name, but it's in vain. It's not. There's, it's meaningless. It's empty. There's nothing behind it. Listen, I'm just telling you, if you want your house in order, it's going to take dedication. This casual Christianity ain't going to cut it. We've raised a generation of Christians on it. How's it working out? They don't even know which bathroom to go in anymore. Listen, I ain't been around a long time, but casual Christianity's been around a long time. And, and, and can I just say, I mean, I'm just trying to be honest with you. I think we've given it its chance, don't you? That This whole idea of consumerism, this whole idea of trying to tailor fit the church to be whatever it is that fits in people's schedule and people's tastes and people's desires. We've tried that. And we don't know which bathroom to go in. We want to murder children out of the womb and inside the womb. We don't even know if we're men and women anymore in society. I think we've given that casual Christianity its chance. How many times, how much brokenness is it going to take until the people of God, until the people on Wall Ridge Road, the people of Wall Ridge Baptist Church are going to stand up and say, obviously that doesn't work. It's going to take more. It's going to take more from me. It's going to take more dedication. You amen me right now. You're going to be amen me at 6 o'clock tonight? 
It's all right. I already got my paycheck. It's all right. Listen, we're just, we're in this thing. You like it or not, we're in this thing. If you want to get mad and go out those double doors, all twisted up in a knot, that's your prerogative. But if you call this your church, if you believe it is your church, if you believe God's planted you here, if you believe God has a purpose and a plan for you here, I'm saying this, it's time that we get in. It's time that we get serious about it. It's going to take dedication. We've tried that casual Christianity. Look what it's doing to our homes and to our country. How much brokenness is it? It's like all these people pushing socialism, socialism. People in Venezuela eating dogs. And people running for president here talking about socialism. How many countries does socialism have to devastate before people are willing to say, yeah, you know, it's broken. People just got through. Hey, listen, you got, you got three or four more hours, don't you? People, you know what I've been hearing this whole time? People say, well, I ain't talking about Venezuelan socialism. I'm talking about Nordic socialism. I'm talking about those Nordic countries. You know that Finland's entire government just resigned about two weeks ago? You know why? Because they couldn't handle health care reform. Because they have an aging population. Because they have more people over 65 than all but four other uh, European nations. And you know what you'll find? Young people don't know this. Because they don't, they don't go to the doctor. But as you get older, guess what? Going to the doctor gets pretty expensive. Somebody ought to run a lap on that. God's blessed you with a new hip, man. Take an aisle. It gets pretty expensive. So when you got an aging population, you got those are all the people with money. Young kid, kids ain't got no money. They got debt, but they ain't got no money. All of a sudden, these older people are taking up a lot of resources, and they've not got young people because they've been preaching for forty years that people shouldn't have children because it's going to kill the, the the darted snail. And so the the Finnish government was tasked as every government has been tasked with, with trying to reform health care. And you know what they did? They got, they're a month out from elections. They said, we can't do it. And the entire government resigned. They said, we're just going to the house. This is too broken for us to fix. And people say, we need that socialism. That's what we need. That's what we need. You say, that's silly, preacher. I'd never do that. That's wicked. How dumb are politicians? You say it all the time. I see it on your Facebook all the time. Dumb politicians. But we keep going back to the same dry cistern and drawn out of casual dead Christianity. That's what's breaking our society. And you think you can raise your kids on it and it not affect them? Think I can raise my kids on it and it not affect them? You think I can leave my home without real Christianity and it's not going to affect it? Oh, it's real easy. If you Listen, if I stand up here and keep talking about politics, you'd amen me. I ain't worried about them. I'm worried about us. That's our problem. We've been spending all of our time. We just fix it in Washington. The reality is your dedication has to get right. Has to get right.